welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. I had always believed that the world involved magic. Now I thought that perhaps it involved a magician. In this pointed a profound emotion always present and subconscious that this world of ours has some purpose. And if there's a purpose, there is a person. I had always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy, or rather Reading with Joy, which is my summer book club. We are on chapter four of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, and I am so pleased to have you back. Now, um, oddly, this week I am speaking to you from Durham, which is a city in the north of England. I was thinking about it, and the first two weeks I recorded this uh, this book series, this book club, I was in Oxford. But then last week I was in St. Andrews. This week I will be in Durham, or I am in Durham. And the next week I will probably record this in Toronto and slash or New York. And then the next week I'll record it from Colorado. So I was laughing about the fact that you all are kind of traveling with me because every episode that I've recorded, except for the first two, will have been in a different place. So I'm very happy to have you along on this trip with me. And um, if I'm speaking slightly quietly, it's because I have a feeling that the people in the rooms next to me are going to hear this whole podcast. So maybe they too will join in on the book club. I am up here for a conference. I just moved back into my flat last week, as I told all of you, and everything got surprisingly settled surprisingly quickly. And then as soon as I was barely starting to get settled in and enjoy fish and chips and walk to the beach with Joel, it was time to jet off again. So I'm here to do a paper, a paper that's actually quite fun. It's on Harry Potter and the influence of medieval morality plays um, in in the series, and if you are on my Patreon, you will have already heard a bit of this, but I think it'll be a really fun paper to give, and um, there's lots of interesting people here, and um, it makes me feel very much like a grown-up to be jetting around, giving talks, um, and taking trains all by myself. So, um, I mean, I often take trains by myself. Maybe I should say going to do speaking by myself. Anyway, (laughs) welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you with me in Durham, uh, and I'm so excited to dive into this week's chapter. Now, as I said last week, if you have made it this far in the book club, three pats in the back, five gold stars, well done. You've made it through, I think, the most difficult and the most unintuitive chapters. If I were G.K. Chesterton's editor, I would have said, mate, this is a great book, but you should put the hard chapters later so that people won't get bogged down and quit. The last two chapters were particularly hard, I think, because Chesterton was kind of trying to account for what had gone wrong in in modern thinking that made it so difficult to even begin the journey of pursuing truth uh, or pursuing a belief that in some way corresponded with and got to the heart of reality. And I think he felt like he needed to do those chapters because he needed to clear away some of the wrong suppositions so he could put us in a place where we could uh, follow our intuitions and see what made the most sense of them. And I think this is actually a journey he went on as well. It's interesting I didn't mention this before, but um, if you were to look into Chesterton's biography, which I did a very long time ago, um, there was kind of a point in Chesterton's life where he actually experienced something of a mental breakdown um, shortly before he kind of started on the road towards uh, towards belief. 
And so when he writes about the madman and the madness that the, that the modern uh, way of thinking causes, um, he's, he's not speaking purely metaphorically because for him that was a really dark time. And, um, and so I think that he felt like it was necessary to go through and remind us of all the ways we might be bogged down in our journey to kind of clear the path to say we need to believe in something outside of our own minds. We need to know the importance of imagination uh, because those were the things that bogged him down and led uh, not only to difficulties in even finding a belief, but difficulties in his own mental health. But all this to say, we have made it past the difficult chapters. I joked last week, um, we will talk a little bit about the book, The Secular Age, in this chapter, uh, probably. Uh, but the, cha the Secular Age is kind of a defining philosophical tome. It's like 870 pages long, and I haven't read all of it, uh, by a philosopher named Charles Taylor, who, on a side note, wrote it when he was like 77. Uh, and it's, you know, his one of his magnum opus. I would say it's probably his magnum opus. So if you're ever feeling discouraged and like you haven't accomplished anything in life, just keep in mind um, that you might write your magnum opus at 77. Uh, I digress though. The point of this is that it's an amazing work where he kind of chronicles how we came from a world in which everyone took it as a granted to believe in God and then how we got to a point where believing in God was one option amongst many and a lot of people don't. And he does an incredible, like, very detailed look into what changed socially and religiously and philosophically to get to this point. And I was joking with a friend last week that I think that Chesterton tries to fit basically what Charles Taylor does um, in two chapters in about 12,000 words. Um, so well done, Chesterton. Our brains are dizzy. I'm proud of all of you. And now we get to dive into this week's chapter, which is uh, such a breath of fresh air. And it's one of my favorite essays, period, actually. Uh, sometimes I have just enjoyed reading this, this essay totally out of context to the rest of the book, just opening up and reading it because I enjoy it so much. And I think that if you know me and you followed me for a while, it will perhaps not be surprising that I love this essay so much. There is something about this chapter that kind of gets to my deepest intuitions about the world. And perhaps that's because Chesterton is trying to do exactly the same thing. This chapter, if I were to try to summarize it, I would say that it is a vindication of an attitude of wonder and enchantment, not only as a beneficial mood or uh, something that makes you a nice person or, or bright or cheerful, but also as an appropriate and necessary attitude towards inquiry. So Chesterton in this makes the claim that he learned more about the world and about the fundamental reality of things through fairy tales than he ever did uh, through the modern man. And this isn't just an, um, um, an emphasis, you know, telling everyone that you should just be whimsical because being whimsical is fun. He actually is arguing more positively that this is an appropriate way to approach reality and that we might actually miss things that we would otherwise um, we would otherwise see if we didn't approach the world with this kind of attitude of humility. And I'm, I'm flipping through because there's this wonderful part where he says, I deny altogether that this, this attitude I'm describing, is fantastic or even mystical. We may have some mysticism later on, but this fairy tale language about things is simply rational and agnostic. And um, so, so his point with looking at fairy tales um, is this. When he looked at the world, he felt intuitively that the world was enchanted and fitting and lovely and mysterious. Uh, he saw it as an enchanted environment full of magic and awe and wonder and intricacy. 
And he juxtaposes this with the scientist who sees the world as a machine that repeats itself, that goes on and on, that's relentless and impersonal and doesn't reveal anything. But the point I think that Chesterton is trying to make is that both he and the scientist are looking at the same world. They are being given the same facts, the same um, sensory input, the same world that they're dealing with. But both of them are seeing and narrating it in a different way. So Chesterton narrates it in an attitude of incredulity and in an attitude of wonder. Whereas the scientist, and of course this is not to go against scientists, but more perhaps what Lewis would call scientism, which is um, kind of goes beyond scientists because scientists take the world as it is and try to make sense of it. Uh, but Chesterton's kind of saying that there's an attitude towards the world that goes beyond that and that sees everything merely as a machine. And I think that part of what Chesterton is saying is that this way that we narrate the world will shape what we see in it and how we interpret the world. And what he's asking us is he's saying, is one of these ways of regarding these dispositions, this kind of attitude towards the world, um, right? Is one of them more appropriate for the pursuit of truth? And as he, he puts it, uh, he thinks that the fairy tale attitude is the more sound, the more logical, and the more agnostic. And we will get into why that is the case uh, as we dive into this chapter. And um, this is the part of the story where Professor Joy is going to give you a big word, which many of you may know, and maybe some of you won't, and you will learn something. And that is to say that I think what Chesterton is doing in this chapter is he is juxtaposing two epistemologies. Now, epistemology means um, an ology is always the study of, uh, and epistemology is the study of how we know things. And what he's saying is that the scientist, um, I'm using that, I don't actually think he uses that word, so I should probably stop using it, but the, um, the modern man, we'll put it that way, the modern man has an overly um, secure epistemology. He makes too many connections and thinks that we can know things more surely than we can. Uh, the modern man sees the repetition of nature and he therefore assumes that we can know that nature is deterministic and purely natural. And Chesterton kind of begins by saying, far before I believed in God, this seemed like an epistemological stretch. It seems like it's too much to say that we can know this based on what we're given in nature. Uh, and so that's what he does, is he juxtaposes these two ways of approaching the world, one which assumes that we can know because we can see patterns in nature that the world is simply a machine that whirs on. Uh, and the other is one that approaches the world with a sense of, of holy agnosticism, of saying, I'm not sure that I can make those connections and maybe the world is actually wondrous. And what would happen if I followed that intuition? Now, this is kind of a, a fun place where I'm going to get a little bit off on um, some historical rants and maybe even read you a part of one of my papers, which I don't usually do. So you, will, you all may get um, a little sniff of something that I wrote a long time ago, a little bit of my actual academic work. Um, but it's interesting to know that Chesterton is writing at a very kind of pivotal time in philosophy. And I think an easy way to describe how what Chesterton is juxtaposing is he's juxtaposing uh, approaching the world with that is enchanted and approaching the world, a world that is disenchanted. 
And we kind of throw these words around, but they actually have a real history in philosophy. So in 1905, a fellow called Max Weber, spelled W-E-B-E-R, -E uh, who was a sociologist and philosopher, uh, wrote a book whose name I cannot recall. Let me see, I'm looking it up. Um, ah, it's called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. What, a, what an interesting, fascinating book. Uh, now this set the tone for a lot of um, conversations that we have, even though a lot of times people don't even know this is where it came from. And in this book, Weber argues that due to various um, historical happenings and, um, and even monetary and capitalistic happenings, we have increasingly moved from a world in which the world was perceived as enchanted, which he attributes to kind of the medieval and Catholic view of the world, to a world that is disenchanted, that is practical, that is driven by commerce and industry and rationality. And he kind of juxtaposes these two things and says that we've moved into the world that is disenchanted. And that uh, I think in his mind, this is quite a good thing. He was not a huge fan of the enchanted view of the world. And this actually became hugely influential. There began to be this kind of divide uh, in everyone's minds where he said, well, in the past, people were lived in an enchanted world that was defined by their belief in magic and in spirits and in, um, you know, the old cosmology, as we talked about a couple months ago in the podcast. But now we believe in science and rationality and uh, really in determinism and... Um, that there's the things only come from the natural world and there's no spiritual elements. So he kind of created this juxtaposition. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, Chesterton wrote this in 1908 and uh, this text by Weber was written in 1905. And so I kind of wonder if either he had read this text or if it was just kind of in the general cultural milieu of discussions at that time. There was this kind of bifurcation between the reasonable, rational, scientific way to approach the world uh, and the old-fashioned, outdated, disproven, enchanted view of the world. And uh, what what he's really doing here is he's trying to say, no, no, the old-fashioned, outdated one isn't necessarily uh, less rational or less logical uh, than the rationalistic and deterministic view uh, that materialists will hold, people who only believe in a material world and not in a spiritual world. And lots of people have gone on to write about this, most significantly, as I said earlier, Charles Taylor, and I thought I would read you a little section from a paper I wrote a while ago where Taylor um, articulates how this changes, how people perceive and approach the world. Because that's really what Chesterton's talking about. He's not arguing about facts exactly. He's arguing about the way that we approach the world and what we feel confident to say we can know about it. Um, there's a section in Secular Age where Taylor says this. New science gave a clear theoretical form to the idea of an imminent order, imminent meaning um, not transcendent in opposition to transcendence, uh, which could be understood on its own without reference to interventions from outside, even if we might reason from it to a creator and even a benevolent creator. The life of the buffered individual, instrumentally effective in secular time, created the practical context within the self-sufficiency of this imminent realm could be a matter of experience. So what he's saying is that um, around the 19th century we began to be able to conceive of the world as kind of its own uh, little machine that was self-enclosed that we could reason to God from, but that we could understand without reference to God, if that makes sense. And he says, well, I say, uh, describing Taylor, 
that within this he calls us the imminent frame. So it's like a frame that keeps us inside imminence, which imminence is the things we can touch and feel and see that are in front of us. Transcendence being spirituality and God and beyond. Um, he says within the imminent frame, the natural world, actually he doesn't say this, I say this, <laughs> is perceived as uh, mechanistic and self-contained. So it's like a machine and it can be understood on its own. According to Taylor, the pre-modern individual saw the world as porous, where the imminent and the transcendent shared space. So we could see the order of nature, uh, but we would assume that that order was shared and participated in and sustained by God. Uh, within this porous conception of nature, Rowan Williams writes that things are not only what they are, but they give more than they have. So the stars were orderly and beautiful, but they also spoke to something beyond themselves. But Taylor argues that with the advent of scientific discoveries, the world begins to be imagined as a system of cogs and buttons, whirring on an infinite and different exactitude. Transcendence becomes something that is outside of the machine. Um, so spirituality is something that isn't really involved in the everyday workings of the world. And immanence and transcendence are placed into separate planes with the imminent, so all the physical things, the material world, being the real and rational, and the transcendent being the possible and imagined. So in this world, one could still infer a creator from the order of the natural world, but the natural order didn't need to disclose anything about God. James K. Smith describes this shift as a move from a cosmos to a universe, from an ordered, layered, hierarchical, shepherded place to an infinite, cavernous, anonymous space. So I wanted to read this to you because I felt like it was so kind of, um, it matched so well with, with Chesterton's description of the juxtaposition between the fairy tale world that he loved and knew and felt intuitively to be true and the world of the scientific universe. And I wanted to read this little section because I think this really sets up well the two ways of approaching the world that he describes um, before we go on to following his intuitions. So juxtaposing these two different ways of seeing the world, he says, the man of science says, cut the stalk, the apple will fall. But he says it calmly, as if one idea really led to the other. The witch in the fairy tale says, blow the horn and the ogre's castle will fall. But she does not say it as if it were something in which the effect obviously rose out of the cause. Doubtless, she has given the advice to many champions and has seen many castles fall, and she does not lose either her wonder or her reason. She does not muddle her head until it imagines an unnecessary mental connection between a horn and a falling tower. But the scientific men do not muddle their heads until they imagine a necessary mental connection between an apple leaving the tree and an apple reaching the ground. They do not really talk as if they had found only a set of marvelous facts, but a truth connecting those facts. They do not talk as if the connection of two strange things physically connected them philosophically. They feel that because one incomprehensible thing constantly follows another incomprehensible thing, the two together somehow make up a comprehensible thing. Two black riddles make a white answer. So basically what Chesterton is saying is that our modern world kind of takes on this almost prideful, um, presumptuous attitude that because we can observe things being related to each other, we naturally uh, know the cause for them. And I think it's funny to watch this happen in a scientific level because it gets smaller and smaller, but we still don't understand, which is that there's kind of this assumption that once we understand how something works in a physical level, therefore um, that, you know, removes the need for God. 
Uh, but what Chesterton's kind of saying is that we can describe the subatomic atoms, but what we can't describe is why there is something rather than nothing. And the, the advantage of the fairy tale approach is that it, it puts us in a position of humility, of taking the world as a grand and wonderful miracle. But it's hard for us to get back into that frame of mind because we're so used to the scientific kind of modern way of seeing. And that's something I also love, and I'm kind of getting off track here, but uh, in Taylor's work, because he describes how we have this experience of haunting, which is the feeling that this, this description of the world that's purely materialistic and um, purely like a machine causes some of us kind of to feel cramped, to not feel like it's a sufficient way of regarding the world. And so we need a different kind of lens or way to regard reality. And Chesterton basically says that fairy tales give us that different way to regard it. He says, these tales tell us that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment we found out that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. I have said that this is wholly reasonable and even agnostic, and indeed that I am all for the higher agnosticism. Its better name may be ignorance. So Chesterton is saying that he wants to get us back to this place where we can see the world with this fresh and wondrous eyes, where we do not assume that we can possess kind of close-ended knowledge. And I think it's interesting because I think that this actually pairs very well with the real scientific view of the world. Um, the more that we press into things, the more mystery we actually encounter. I once heard it said, uh, I think this is a famous quote, but I don't remember who said it, that a little science will make you an atheist, um, but a lot of science will make you believe in God. And I have said this over and over again, but uh, something that really made an impression on me was, um, was reading the, some physics uh, in between my master's and my PhD. And it was really remarkable to me how the author of the book that I read who was agnostic. I don't think he was of a particular faith tradition. I think he even said that. But there are these parts where he would get down to how remarkable it was that we lived in the world that we lived in and how unlikely it was on a, on a level of, of physics and of, and of um, the likelihood of everything coalescing in the way that it did. And he would say one almost, he, he would almost kind of come up to being like, you almost have to think there was a God or something. Um, and that was his conclusion, being one of the best scientists coming to the very edge of, um, of this wondrous world that we've been given. And I think that uh, that attitude the scientist came to, which was truly uh, the most scientific attitude, I think that Chesterton in this chapter, he tells us he's trying to come to a natural religion. And a natural, natural religion or natural law is the idea that there are kind of some fundamental things um, that we can understand about about morality, about reason, that when we look through all traditions in time, it's kind of like there's a there's a presence that can lead us towards God, uh, even before we encounter revelation. And I think that that's kind of what Chesterton is, is getting at in this. He's saying that um, there is this kind of wonder and remarkability that we come at when we look at nature with these eyes of the fairy tale rather than the eyes of, of the pessimist where we see the world as wondrous and strange and fitting just the way it is. And this is more of a scientific attitude, I think, than the overdetermined, overconfident attitude that he describes in The Modern Man. Um, because what he's trying to do in all this is to say, what are the things that seem to be true about the world? And then he's trying to make sense of those things. And in many ways, that's very similar to the scientific process. It's um, 
It's looking at the evidence that's given to us and forming a hypothesis. And that is what he's trying to do. And what Chesterton claims is that the world that fairy tales presented to him, which showed the world as wondrous and marvelous, um, and also we'll, we'll talk about more about what that involved, that was actually closer to the world that we were given in the real world um, than what he was described by modern, by modern men. And so he says that... Um, then this is where we start to get into what were the things that he felt were true about this world? What were the intuitions? What were the things that he needed to make sense of? And really they kind of boil down to two things. One is that um, he finds that the world is a shock, but a good shock. Um, so that's the sense of the world being as it was, being remarkable, being intricate, being perfect, but also being somehow fitting. Um, that it, there's kind of a, an intricacy and a beauty that, that speaks to some kind of telos or higher purpose. He says, these were the first two feelings, indefensible and indisputable. So in that, he's kind of trying to get to what are the, the first principles we have? What are the gut feelings we have about the world that are indefensible, but in some senses also seem indisputable? And he says, this was the first one, that the world was a shock, but that it was not merely shocking. Existence was a surprise, but it was a pleasant surprise. In fact, all my first views were exactly uttered in a riddle that stuck in my brain beyond boyhood. The question was, what did the first frog say? And the answer was, Lord, how you made me jump. That succinctly says all that I am saying. God made the frog jump, but the frog prefers jumping. So that's kind of this picture of his first intuition about the world um, that was more cleanly told to him by fairy tales that renewed his wonder and his attitude and disposition of enchantment was that the world um, is shocking, remarkable, miraculous, but also there's a sense of order and delicacy and fittingness and pleasingness, if that makes sense. And the second thing he says that was a kind of fundamental um, belief for him is what he calls conditional happiness. And also this is a fun little uh, bit to note, which is that he talks about Andrew Lang and Andrew Lang is um, actually buried in the St. Andrew's uh, graveyard near the cathedral. And Andrew Lang was a fairy tale author who also wrote the books that inspired um, uh, J.K. not J.K. Rowling, <laughs> uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien writes about Andrew Lang in his own essay on fairy stories. So I think it's interesting that it's fun to think of all of the similar people they were reading and thinking about. Um, but he says, he talks about conditional happiness, which is that according to elfin ethics, all virtue is an if. Um, you may live in a palace of gold and sapphire if you do not say the word cow. Uh, or you may live happily with the king's daughter if you do not show her an onion. And he talks about how these things are kind of, um, they seem almost arbitrary, but there's this sense in which uh, you, you give into it because that is the law of the land. And he says, in the fairy tale, an incomprehensible happiness rests upon an incomprehensible condition. A box is opened and all evils fly out. A world is forgotten and cities perish. A lamp is lit and love flies away. A flower is plucked and human lives are forfeited. An apple is eaten and the hope of God is gone. But there's this sense that Chesterton says that he had this kind of intuition. He says, I feel, I felt and feel that life itself is as bright as a diamond, but as brittle as a window pane. And when the heavens were compared with a terrible crystal, I can remember a shudder. I was afraid that God would drop the cosmos with a crash. So he has this sense um, that there are certain negations. And I think in this, he's talking about the sense of conscience that we all have. There's a sense that there are certain things we cannot do. Um, 
that we just kind of know by our consciences, but that that's not a um, infringement upon our liberty, but rather it's the price of living in the marvelous and fitting world. Uh, and the way that he describes this is, that I think is really lovely, is he talks about um, the, the Christian ethic of sexuality. He writes that I um, could never mix with the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself. Keeping to one woman is a small price for seeing so much as one woman. To complain that I could not be married once, that I could only be married once, was like complaining that I'd only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an excited sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. Polygamy is a lack of realization of sex. It is like a man plucking five pears in the mere absence of mind. The aesthetes touch the last insane limits of language in their eulogy on loving things. So what he's saying is that there's a sense that um, that limitation or conditionality um, shouldn't be a hindrance to happiness because the very happiness that we are given, the very ability to make choice at all, is such a wondrous thing. I think the whole attitude that he's trying to get at is that we take far too much for granted. We think we think we know the world too well. So this is his summation of what fairy stories taught him and how this is a more appropriate and even agnostic approach to the world. These were the two convictions. First, that this world is a wild and startling place, which might have been quite different, but which is quite delightful. And second, that before this wildness and delight, one may well be honest and submit to the queerest limitations of so queer a kindness. So I love this. Chesterton has this attitude of kind of like waking up in a fairyland um, that is wonderful and delightful. And this for him is waking up in life. But when you wake up in a fairy tale, if someone tells you not to eat the apple, you don't eat the apple because you are blessed to begin with to be in the fairy tale. But he says, and this is where we get back into the two views of the world, um, that the whole modern world um, was running against these intuitions about the world. And in two ways, he says that everything, um, that they were all talking scientific fatalism, that everything is as it must have been, unfolded without fault from the beginning. And again, this is not a matter of fact. We can't exactly um, say whether or not this is true in a factual sense. This is a matter of approach. It's assuming that we can understand exactly how everything unfolded and that we understand all the dictums of science. And he says that um, kind of the support for this was merely that we saw things be repetitive and therefore the world must be dead or mechanistic. And this is where he goes into this wonderful um, section where he defends the vivacity of repeated things. He says the scientific man looks at the world and sees something um, as being repeated and therefore dead, impersonal. But he says, the grass seemed signaling to me with all its fingers at once. The crowded stars seemed bent upon being understood. The sun would make me see him rise a thousand times. The recurrences of the universe rose to a maddening rhythm of incantation. And I began to see an idea. So there's this sense in which he looks at, at creation, at um, the world, and he sees the repetition as all kind of leading towards something like a great cosmic dance. And he's shocked that everybody else sees the world as something dead, a piece of clockwork. And this is where um, he gets to one of my favorite sections, and I'm going to read it to you now. Because
Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce, and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, but our father is younger than we. So this is the attitude that Chesterton comes at the world with. He says that from his cradle, he learned from his nurse, um, that star-appointed nurse of democracy, as, she, as he calls her, um, this sense of the world as being given, as being given as a gift that he cannot control and that he cannot um, dictate, but that is too wonderful to want to dictate. And um, he looks at the repetition of nature and says, it is just as reasonable and an agnostic framework to say that this was the sign of some great vivacity behind life, as it is to say that it's simply a machine. And this leads him to um, believe, he says, at this point, this pointed a profound emotion, always present and subconscious, that this world of ours has some purpose, and that if there is a purpose, there is a person. I had always felt life first as a story, and if there is a story, there is a storyteller. At the beginning of this chapter, he talks about um, how he is in favor of democracy and is always more in favor of listening to the common intuitions of man than of that fussy intellectual class. And I think that that's really um, what he's attempting to do in this. He's not trying to praise whimsy purely for whimsy's sake. He's trying to say, what are our actual intuitions if we were to take off the, the goggles of our kind of cynical modern minds that tell us we must believe everything is a machine? Um, because as he's made the point of, this is not actually a logical um, connection. Just simply because we see connections doesn't mean that we are able to therefore explain why there is something rather than nothing. Uh, when we take off those glasses, what do we perceive in this magnificent, wondrous world of ours? What I love about this chapter is I think that Chesterton is not only trying to make an argument, he's doing what is true rhetoric. Rhetoric means a means of persuasion. And rhetoric is always doing something to us. And I think that what Chesterton is trying to do is he's trying to do what fairy tales did for him. It's like that passage, which I think I already read you, where he says that these tales um, said that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found out they were green. And that, I think, is what Chesterton is trying to do for us. He's trying to help us encounter the world anew with fresh eyes and say, what are the intuitions we have about this world of ours? What might they believe us um, to lead us to believe to be true? And he's also trying to shake off the kind of lax um, ideology of modernism that we must believe the world is a machine when that is not necessarily um, what is indicated to us. And I will say at this point, Chesterton's not really making a clear and cut argument for Christianity. He's more from his own eyes looking at the world in its wondrousness, in its um, particularity, in its intricacy, in its silliness, and trying to make sense of what this world is and what it should mean to us. And he ends, um, ends saying this, 
I felt in my bones, first, that this world does not explain itself. It may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick with a natural explanation. But the explanation of the conjuring trick, if it is to satisfy me, will have to be better than the natural explanations I have heard. The thing is magic, true or false. Second, I came to feel as if, it, as if the magic must have a meaning, and as if meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Whatever it meant, it meant violently. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design, in spite of its defects, such as dragons. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint, that we should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. We owed also an obedience to whatever made us. And last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was remnant to be stored and held out of some sacred primordial ruin. Man had saved his goods as Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. All this I felt, and the age gave me no encouragement to feel it. And all this time I had not even thought of Christian theology. So this is one of my favorite chapters, because every time I read it, I feel like the scales fall away from my eyes. It kind of gives me permission to give in to the intuitions I have about the beauty of the world and about the feeling that it's personal and that it tends towards something. It reminds me that it is very reasonable to doubt the kind of mechanistic, materialistic, deterministic view of the world that says that everything is just a product of chance. Um, because that isn't necessarily even the story that the most impersonal science would tell us. The world is wondrous and strange. We live in a planet that's perfectly suited towards the sun so that we don't melt or so that we don't freeze. We live in a world that is, as, um, as Chesterton said, a surprise, but not a bad surprise. And that's probably why I think I love this chapter so much, is that it gives us, um, you know, in the opening, in the second chapter, he talks about how the best way to cure the madman um, is not to give it more arguments, but to give it air. And I feel like this chapter is that. It is giving our minds air so we can begin the search for truth and an attitude of wonder and of enchantment, knowing that that attitude is not just childish, but might actually be an appropriate uh, way to seek what might be true. And so in closing, I'll tell you kind of my two main things that I take away from this chapter. The first is to remember how much our view of the world is shaped um, by the glasses or the, the views that we have from our specific time period. I think one of the things that was most influential to me about reading uh, Taylor was realizing how the worlds that we live in narrate what is true about the world to us and that those narrations shape how we see the world and shape what we may and may not notice. And so if we feel um, like perhaps we're missing something, maybe what we need to do is to try to reorient ourselves and the way we see the world. We need to read fairy stories. We need to let people like Chesterton help us get a new view of reality and not assume that the way we see it is entirely without its blind spots. We will always have historic blind spots and we need to keep on being reminded and refreshed and renewed and washed so that we can see the world in a new way. And that's kind of a relief too because um, it's a relief to know that when I have moments of, of doubt, maybe part of that's just because I live in a world that makes it hard to believe. 
but that it makes it hard to believe not because it's the most logical, but because it has gotten stuck in some ruts of thinking that are not helpful. And then I think the second thing that it makes me think of is it kind of puts me in an attitude of attentive awe towards the world. I love, um, I love the passage where he says, it is a good exercise in empty or ugly hours of the day to look at anything, the coal scuttle, the bookcase, and think how happy one would have been to brought it out on that sinking ship to the solitary island. But it is a better exercise still to remember how all things had this hair breadth escape. Everything has been saved from a wreck. Every man has had one horrible adventure, a hidden untimely birth he had not been as infants that never see the light. Men spoke much in my boyhood of restricted or ruined men of genius. It was common to say that a man was a great might have been. But to me, it is more solid and startling fact that any man in the great street is a great might not have been. And I love uh, Chesterton's ability to look at the world and take it as this pure gift and to be surprised by it. And it always makes me want to be more surprised by the world and know that that is a reasonable way to approach the world that helps us actually see it clearer. So I hope that you enjoyed this chapter and I will look forward to all of your comments and thoughts on it. And I should wrap up this podcast so that my neighbor doesn't um, start to hate me. (laughs) Um, I'm so happy you all are joining in. I love seeing your comments and um, particularly getting your emails. And I also want to tell all of you to please keep your eyes peeled for events. I'll be posting about them soon. Right now, we for sure have two in um, North Carolina and then also in Colorado. So blessings to all of you. I wish you well. And I will see you next week when we read chapter... Five, the flag of the world. Bye, everyone.